Please open them to uh, John chapter 8 with me. Give me a second to get set up here. All right, before I dive into God's word, I just want to uh, mention a couple of prayer requests that we have for people of our church. Um, number one, Sister Lupita and Brother Javier were at the uh, emergency room um, a couple of days ago, and uh, he's having some complications and uh, needs your prayers for that, uh, so please keep him in prayer. Also, Sister Betty is still suffering with pain. Um, she needs your prayers, and then also, let's keep uh, Sister Avery in our prayers. Uh, she's headed back to school, not only her, but also um, all the college students that are headed back um, and uh, keep them in your your prayers. I'm sure they got used to a very long break and going back to school is going to be a, a quite of an awakening for them. So uh, please keep those individuals in your prayers. Uh, let's go ahead and read from verse 2 in the Gospel of John chapter 8 from verse 2 through verse 11. It says, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, or such women. Uh, so what do you say? This they said to him to test him, and that they might uh, have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once, at once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when, he, uh, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That is the word of the Lord. Now, when we talk about, um, as far as uh, debated texts in Scripture, this would be one of the most debated passages in the Bible. Um, for the specific reason is that many feel that this passage uh, should not be included in the Bible. And uh, many feel that, you know, maybe it's not in its proper uh, place. So some believe that it should have a, a footnote, and different translations handle this passage differently. If you look in your own Bible, there may be a note there, um, or it may be in brackets. Um, I've, I have not seen this passage here excluded from any Bible, uh, any version of the Bible. Um, the ones that I have seen included in one way or another. And the issue rises from the fact that this uh, passage here uh, basically starts from seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 53, through uh, 8, uh, verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11. Um, the issue is that this uh, passage is not documented in the earliest uh, Greek manuscripts uh, of the Bible. And because of that, theologians think that maybe uh, within some time in church history that that uh, a scribe or somebody else added this uh, to the Bible. Now, uh, most of the theologians think that this was an actual uh, occurring, uh, uh, an event that occurred, 
and that this was not a made-up story, but that someone actually added it to the Gospel of John uh, later. And here are the arguments for it. Number one, the story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts for the first uh, five centuries of, of, of church history. And also, uh, when it comes to the early church fathers who uh, commented on these Greek manuscripts, who gave us a clear direction on what they were saying, um, the church fathers omitted this passage in their commentary um, of John. Uh, the text also flows better. When you look at the text itself and you skip from uh, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 52, and then you go to uh, uh, verse 12 of chapter 8, it, it all flows better, um, verbally speaking, or, or in, in a sentence structure. Uh, when the story uh, starts to appear, uh, when this story starts to appear in manuscripts, um, it shows up in different places. It uh, shows up in uh, John chapter 7, verse 36. It shows up in uh, some manuscripts have it in John chapter 7, verse, uh, chapter, uh, verse 44. Uh, some have it in, even in Luke. And I actually think that's the best place for it, and a lot of uh, theologians do as well. Luke chapter 21, uh, starting in verse 38. It makes a lot of sense if, it, if it's plugged in there. And some of the earliest manuscripts have it plugged in there as well. And then lastly is the style and the vocab of, of what is written here. It doesn't match up with the rest of the Gospel of John. Now, uh, saying all that, even though many scholars believe that this text is not original to John, um, many scholars throughout church history have, that they, they believe that this text is, is genuine. Uh, they believe that it is inspired by God. Uh, number one, it doesn't contain any doctrinal errors. It is solid. It's a wonderful uh, passage, and it, it speaks of, of wonderful truths about God and the grace that he has extended to us. And then number two, it fits the character of Jesus and his teaching. I mean, when you, uh, when you hear this story, when you hear this story and you read this passage in the Bible, you can see Jesus doing what he does. You can hear him saying what he says. And for me, it's, it's, it's powerful. It, it is just absolutely powerful. It's a wonderful biblical story. Now, I, I do want to share all that with you because when you open your Bible, you see a note in there, or some of you will see a note in there that says the, early manus the earliest manuscripts do not include um, chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through 8, chapter 11. And then there's a footnote, and it explains it and everything. Uh, my, my version of the Bible, which is ESV, has it in brackets. Now, I want you to know everything that goes behind it, right? And that's what I just gave you. Um, uh, the, some interesting, another interesting, interesting thing about it is that um, even though the earliest manuscripts do not contain this text, even though the manuscripts found in the first five centuries don't contain this text, the majority of all manuscripts put together, they do contain this text. And um, I'm not talking about like 10 manuscripts. I'm talking about close to 6,000 manuscripts. So the majority of all manuscripts actually contain this, this text. And something else that's really interesting about it is that some people have the belief, some theologians have the, the uh, belief that the reason why it was omitted from the earliest manuscripts of, of um, that it was omitted from the earliest manuscripts was an attempt by overzealous church leaders to prevent a misunderstanding on 
the allowance of sin. Now, that's just what some believe. So, let's ask the question this morning. Why is this text omitted from the earliest manuscripts? I have a great answer for you. I don't know. I don't know. And no one does. Everything I told you is is what we can, people who have studied into it and are trying to figure it out. Only God knows. And it will only be revealed in glory. That's that's the simple answer. Uh, We'll know on the other side of heaven. But even though I don't believe that this text is original to John, in in what I've studied, I, I think it fits better in Luke. Um, but even though I don't think that this text is original to this gospel, I do believe that it is godly inspired. I do believe that it belongs in the Bible. Um, and that's, that's why, the way I'm going to preach it. I believe that it is a true event. It is a story that has been accepted by throughout church history. And I believe that it proclaims wonderful truths about God. And that's what I mean about that I believe it's godly inspired. Um, the wonderful thing about it is that in no way does, does it excuse sin. No way. Instead, it teaches us about God's grace and his mercy through what Christ did on the cross and how he took away our sin on the cross. If you're in here and you're bothered by your sin, and by the way, if you are a Christian, you should be bothered by your sin, I, I my hope is that you walk out of here praising the Lord for what he has, he has provided for you in Jesus Christ. You see, it shows us that, that Christ has appeared once for all, as the Bible says. He has appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, there's two things that I want to point out in this passage, or really, really two characters um, the first one is the acu- are the accusers, and then uh, later I want to talk about the sinner, and I'll put that in air quotes. Um, these two are vital to understanding this story. Let's start with the accusers. Uh, this passage here describes how the Pharisees, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, caught a woman in the act of adultery. And the weird thing about it is that they grabbed her and they brought her to Jesus but they had a purpose behind it. They had a reason for doing this. They wanted to trap Jesus. And if we read verses three through five, we'll get a good picture of that. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Then they go back to the law. It says, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. And then here's the test. What do you say? Now, I like what R.C. Sproul says here about, um, about, about this passage, verses 3 through 5. He says, if Jesus were to tell them to carry out the stoning, he would violate the Roman law by which the Romans have reserved to themselves the execution of the death penalty in occupied lands. So he, he would have gotten himself in trouble by saying, yes, put her to death. Then the Roman government would have stepped in and said, no, wait a second, only we can say that. So that was part of the trap. Now, the other part of the trap, uh, R.C. says, if Jesus were here, were to tell them to release the woman, he would appear to condone adultery and violate the law of Moses. So they put him between a rock and a hard place. They said, here you go. This is the woman. We caught her in the act of adultery. 
the law of Moses says she needs to be stoned. Teacher, and that's by no means any form of respect. Teacher, what do you say? And um, instead, instead of, of Jesus responding the way they, they wanted him to respond, as he always did in, in, in the Gospels, he got to the heart of the matter. And he got to the heart of the matter with the sinner, the woman, and also the accusers who were actually sinners as well. Now, concerning the accusers, he called out their hypocrisy. And, and he did it in a powerful way. You see, the reason why I say they were acting as hypocrites is because they were acting like they were actually concerned about the law and the righteousness of the law. They were acting like they were actually trying to uphold the law by holding this woman accountable to her sin. But what they were actually trying to do was to trap the law's creator. They had no, they had no idea they were trying to trap God himself, but that's, that's what their motive was. That's what they were trying to do. It's funny, like when you go on vacation and um, you go to a hotel and they have a swimming pool, how many people actually, before you get in the swimming pool, you read the rules of the swimming pool? You don't care, right? I mean, it's the same thing everywhere you go. It's, you know, the, the 10 rules, the, the 10 commandments of swimming in this pool. We, we don't care about what, what it says. We just jump in, right? The same thing is going on here with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They could care less about what the law says at this moment. That's not the deal. All they want to do is trap Jesus to get him in trouble and basically get rid of him. And there are some things that are missing here that show that they don't care. The very first thing is that if you're going to, commit, if you're going to uh, convict somebody of adultery, it, it takes two to commit the act of adultery. And here we only have the woman standing, right? We only have the woman standing here before everybody. Where's the man? They weren't concerned about him. They weren't concerned about the righteousness of the law. It was the woman that they were after for, so that they could trap Jesus. Uh, most importantly, they brought someone to Jesus for judgment, but not realizing that their own sin was actually greater than hers. They thought they were better. They, they caught somebody in, in, in the act of sin, and they brought her before Christ, and they expected to trap Christ with this. But the whole thing is that uh, you know that, that the whole uh, teaching on get the plank out of your eye before you get the speck out of somebody else's eye? That, that would apply here. They weren't looking at their own sin. They weren't realizing that they were uh, sin, sinful, as, just as sinful as this woman was. So in response to their accusations against the woman and also their demand for Jesus to judge her, the Bible says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his fingers on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So what we get here in this passage is that they weren't just like, they didn't just ask one time. They asked over and over and over. The pastor says as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said what he said. The awesome thing about this is that what Jesus wrote on the ground was very impactful. 
but no one knows what it was. A lot of people have ideas, but no one knows what, what he wrote down on the ground. Whatever it was, it confronted the men with their sin. Now, there are a lot of different things. People say he wrote down something pertaining to the law on the ground. Um, he wrote down uh, maybe a, a quote from an Old Testament quote uh, from Isaiah or Ezekiel. Uh, but some actually believe that he wrote down their sin on the ground. And to think of that, I mean, just think of that. that that's, that's not beyond Christ to do that. He, he, know, he knew what was in man, right? So as these men were sitting there talking to Jesus and saying, we need you to place a judgment on this woman, Jesus just quietly bends down, looks at the older one, because it says from the older to the younger, they left. Looks at the older one. Maybe he wrote down murderer. The older one saw it, threw his stone down and walked away. Maybe the next one, liar, you know, threw his stone down and walked away. One by one by one, he addressed their sin specifically. How convicting would that be? How powerful would that be? So even though we don't know exactly what Jesus wrote down, we know that it was impactful. And we know that it, 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 it brought out, it brought their sin to light. And they were ashamed of it, and they walked away. The thing is, is they, weren't ashamed, they, weren't, they were ashamed of it just because of they knew somebody knew about it, but they weren't repentful of it. And we see the difference between the accusers and the lady who is the sinner in this story. So after they all left, the woman stood there before Jesus, and Scripture says she was alone. Just her and Christ, her and her Savior. She's what we're going to spend the rest of this time on. She's very important to this story, and I hope this is a blessing for you who are here. The alarming thing is in verse 3, our text points out that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, first of all, let's think of how embarrassing that would be, how traumatic that would be. And then she was brought by, just grabbed by a bunch, bunch of people, a bunch of men, and brought before Christ. This made, made a, she was made of a public display of, brought them before Christ. Now, when you read the word adultery, it translates to someone engaging in a sexual act with someone else other than their spouse. No other detail is given here. But actually being caught and taken out in public Think of how embarrassing that was. She was brought before the crowd of people and including Jesus. And essentially there was a, a kangaroo court held and she was there to be accused or to be judged. And Jesus does issue a judgment. He does issue a judgment on her. And because of that judgment, everyone is shocked. Everyone walks away, I think, with a different perspective on grace and who Jesus was. You see, even though Jesus points out the sin of the woman, one important thing to notice here is that he does not condemn her sin. Listen to this. In speaking of her accusers, Jesus stood up and said to her, or excuse me, in speaking to her accusers, Jesus, uh, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord, and Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go 
and from now on, sin no more. That's the judgment that he issued. There was no condemnation for her. Now, our heads should explode at this point if we truly understand what is happening here. What's happening here is we are this lady. She is a representation of us. Yes, even as believers. I know a lot of times we, we compare ourselves for who we were before we were in Christ to people in the Bible when we say, yes, that's us. But even as believers, she is a representation of us. Listen to this. Hear me out for a second. If there is no condemnation of sin for the woman, if Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, that means there was no condemnation of sin for the woman, and the woman was told to repent of her sin, then is it hard for us to believe that she was already a believer? I know that's a different perspective because I think when we initially look at this story, we see the act, we see the sin, we see what's going on here, and then we say, this is definitely an unbeliever. This is definitely someone who doesn't believe because only unbelievers commit adultery. Right? That might be the conclusion that we reach in our minds initially when we see the story. But if we were to look at the text... There's really nothing in the text that tells us that she was an unbeliever. In fact, if we were to look at the text carefully, we would see that it really points to the fact that maybe she was a believer. Because number one, there was no condemnation for her. And number two, she was told to repent. Now, when we look at Jesus talking to people in the Bible, does Jesus ever have a problem not confronting people with their sin? No. Does he ever have a problem telling somebody they're not a believer? No. In fact, as we will study the rest of John chapter 8, we're going to see some very harsh language that Jesus has for the Pharisees and the scribes. He even tells them that they are from their father, the devil. He has no problem calling people out, and yet for this woman, he says, there is no condemnation. He says, go and sin no more. So if we look at her from that perspective, that she, if, if she is a believer and Jesus is telling her this, as I said before, this should make our head explode. Because this is talking about the awesome and wonderful grace that is available for us as believers. This is... Not something that is just talking about the moment we were saved, but this is talking about the sanctification that we go through and how God has patience through that sanctification, through that spiritual growth. This is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think it's easier for us to accept that this woman is an unbeliever because what she did is easier to explain that way. But you know what? Listen to this very carefully. Believers, Christians, do horrible things. 
Just because you are a believer, just because you are a Christian, doesn't mean that you cannot sin against God in a great way. And it doesn't mean you don't sin against God in a great way. Christians are capable of doing horrible, horrible things. And yet, there is grace and mercy available to us. Just think about the Bible itself. Look at the Old Testament. One of the most one of the most popular stories that are the story that comes to the forefront of my mind is David committing adultery with another woman. David is a believer. In fact, the Bible says no one sought after God like David, no man. So he is a believer. He, he commits adultery with this woman. And to make matters worse, he has her husband killed. He does this as a believer. You want to go to the New Testament? Well, let's use Peter. I mean, we can go with any disciple because when Jesus was arrested and whenever he was beaten, what happened to all the disciples? They deserted him. But Peter, for example, Peter denied him. And not just like, no, I don't know him. The Bible says he cursed and he just, he, he violently denied having any association with Christ. Now, both of those sins are horrible, horrible sins. But the thing is, is that God's grace is more. When we look at the woman in the story, Jesus' response to her sin wasn't condemnation, but rather it was mercy and it was grace. And this points to the fact that her faith and her salvation did not rest on her merit or her work. And I praise God for that. You know why? Because sometimes we have this mentality that once we become Christians, then we have to be perfect. Right? That we are going to be perfect. Are we called to perfection? Are we called to be like our Father? Are we called to be holy as He is holy? Yes, we are called to that. We are called to trust, to obey, to repent. But nowhere in Scripture does it say you will be perfect. And we carry this misconception about our, our, not only our salvation, but also our personal walk with God, is that we ourselves are going to uphold what the Bible says according to our own power and our own work. And we set out every single morning saying, I can do this. That's the wrong mentality. What we should do when we walk out of our house is Christ has already done this. He has already done this. He has provided not only my salvation, but he has provided everything for me, including my sanctification, my growth in the Lord, and also my final resting place. He has done that once and for all. So for us to walk out of the house thinking that we have to impress God with with. Our lifestyle, well, if we think that, we are going to fail every single time. Why? Because God knows and can see our hearts and he knows that we are sinners. The Bible says that we fall short of the glory of God. But despite who we are and what we've done, the Bible also says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
it's a wonderful reminder of, again, of the grace that we have and uh, the faith and assurance that we have in salvation for what Christ has already done for us. This woman is us. Listen to this, Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of flesh, sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness or the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I especially love for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Listen to this, Christian, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. See, that's why there was no condemnation for the woman. That's why there is no condemnation for us who believe in Christ. Now, there are some Christians that might hear a message like this, and they're a little pharisaical. They, they have their mind focused on too much on the law. They'll hear a message like this, and they'll be upset at me for preaching it, because to them it seems like I'm excusing a horrible sin of adultery, but I am not excusing it. I'm preaching it in the light of the gospel. I'm preaching it in the light of what Christ has already done for the sin in your life. Your sin is not greater than the sacrifice that Christ has made. There are some people who believe that they can lose their salvation because of their egregious sin. If you are one of those people, then you don't believe in the power of the cross and what Christ has done. The Bible is clear. He died once and for all. There is no sin that is greater than him. If you have placed your faith in him, you cannot be taken out of his hand. There's all these wonderful and great promises. Are we awake out there? Seriously, are we awake? Because this is, this is wonderful. Because we mess up every single day. Like, I mean, horribly, we mess up. And yet, here is the grace that is provided for us. Even for those pharisaical Christians who think that they don't sin big, grace is still provided for them, and God's long-suffering is provided for them as well, so they can come to a realization that they sin just like anyone else does. See, the problem is, though, if we have that point of view where we're sitting there and we're looking at this woman and thinking there's no way she's a Christian because Christians don't do this. If, if that's going through your mind right now, I like to say you have a very high view of self and a low view of your sin. And we need to flip that around. We need to realize that we are sinners saved by grace. That's it. We are sinners saved by grace. Yes, we are new creatures. Yes, God has changed our hearts. Yes, we are forgiven through what Christ has done. But yet we still have sin. And we still battle with it every single day. 
As Paul said in Romans 7, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. The thing that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? And then he points to his Lord and says, thanks be to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the same thing that we need to do every single morning. That's the same thing we need to do every single day, praising God for the grace and mercy that is available to us through Christ. Jesus acknowledges a woman's sin. We need to see that. He does not excuse it. In fact, verse 11, he tells her to go and sin no more. That's very important for us. In other words, what he's saying is, go and do not commit adultery again. Now, when we look at this woman's story and how she represents us, because we are sinful just as she is, we must realize that we are, again, wretched sinners, that we fall short and that we need to be saved and we also need to be sanctified. We need help in both. We need God to do both, actually. As people who sin, we do horrible things against God and against man. For instance, Jesus says to hate someone is like committing murder against them in your heart. How many of us in here have hated somebody at one point or another? It's an egregious sin against God. Who's going to take that sin away from you? You're not going to do it yourself. You need somebody to take it away. Even after, even after becoming a Christian, have you never hated anybody? Now, don't commit another sin by lying. Don't, don't add on top of it. Jesus says to look at a woman or a man lustfully is like committing adultery with them in your heart. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. Do we do that? We are commanded not to worship idols, and yet our hearts are idol factories. We are told to honor our father and mother. But for the parents in here, I don't have to say any more. You see, we commit awful sin against God all the time. And God confronts us with our sin. We don't get away with it. Number one, he's already paid the price for it. But number two, the Bible tells us that he disciplines us as his children. We don't get away with what we do. God disciplines us. And the purpose of discipline is not to evaporate us or to extinguish us or to punish us without a purpose. The purpose of discipline is to bring us to him, to humble us, to know that we serve a mighty God. So we are confronted with our sin just as the adulterous woman was. And when we are confronted with our sin, she is the example for us. This is what we must do. Christ, what Christ told her to do, Jesus commanded her to go and sin no more. So for us, whenever we are confronted with our sin, what are we to do? We are to repent and sin no more. We are to repent and believe. See, the believer's life is one of sin, repentance, and growth. Sin, repentance, and growth. Sin, repentance, and growth. We're going to continue to deal with sin, but as a believer, you are called to repent. God has given you grace 
but it's not for you to be for, for you to throw it away. It's not for you to ignore it or to pass right by it. It is for you to use to spur you to repentance and growth. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter six. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Listen here. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Christians, we are told to repent and believe the gospel. Listen to this. You are not your own savior. You are not the savior of your life, nor are you the provider of your holiness. You are not perfect. And that is not an excuse. That is fact. That is truth. But you serve a perfect God who has given you perfect mercy, perfect grace. You as a Christian, you are capable of horrible things and you need to you need to prepare your minds for action. You need to be in his word. You need to be praying for God to build you up in the most holy faith. You need to keep yourself around believers that are like minded to help you in your in your walk. You need to do all these things because you are capable of egregious sin. But most of all, you need to look to God, who is the provider, the provider of your salvation and also of your sanctification. When you sin, and when you are confronted with your sin, you are called to repent and believe and trust. That's what you are called to do. I want to read this in closing. It's a song that we just sang before I came up here and preached. Um, this song is His Mercy is More. It's my favorite praise and worship song. Um, it's just a w- reminder of who I am as a sinner and how God has saved me. But it says this, What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, but his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is, is, is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a death, a debt that we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let us pray.